For a group of Christians who supposedly had experienced the joy and the light of being with Jesus, they were a pretty grim-looking lot. There wasn't a smile among all of them. Now, before you decide that this is destined to be just another sermon, criticizing the faithful for not being warm enough or kind enough or hospitable enough, let me say something in their defense. They were all dead, every one of them. And I don't mean spiritually dead or dead in their sins. Every last one of them had been dead for at least 700 years, and some of them twice as long as that. Their opportunities to be radiant, warm, hospitable Christians expired when they expired. So it's not my intent to criticize them this morning. I was standing in the nave of a beautiful old cathedral in France some years ago. I was listening to the tour guide describe the exquisitely carved images of the saints of the church that lined the upper walls. Saints Matthew and Mark, he pointed out, were by the hand of a renowned Florentine sculptor. Saints Luke and John, he told us, were, were copies of originals by Michelangelo. Saint Patrick, Saint Cuthbert, Saint Jerome, Saint Francis, they were all carved from Italian marble, he said, even though half of those saints came from the British Isles. St. Anne, we found out, was an example of a Venetian school of sculpting. And the tour guide lowered his voice and admitted that there was an ongoing debate about whether St. Elizabeth was actually a Christian icon at all or just the statue of a wealthy Roman housewife. On and on it went. St. Sebastian is the one always pictured as pierced full of arrows because tradition says that's how he died. St. Francis, you'll remember, always has the birds fluttering around his head. And St. Lawrence, St. Lawrence who died a martyr's death on a flaming metal table is, and I am not joking, the patron saint of cooks and restaurateurs. As I said, they were a pretty grim-looking lot. Long, drawn, melancholy faces. Eyes turned upward. They were men and women consumed with the pain of living here below. And not a one of them had their feet on the ground. There they were, the supposed saints of the church, 20 feet up the cathedral walls, halfway between where we live and some believe the angels live. As the tour guide continued speaking, I began to see in my imagination a different group, another collection of the saints of the church. It was a collection of the faces of believers that I have seen now in 40 years of ministry. Elderly women in Guatemala, their heads covered with brilliant kerchiefs, kneeling in public amphitheaters to pray for the evangelistic meeting that would happen there that evening. Young businessmen 
hurrying into our church committees, pouring their love and energy into helping a large church structure run well. College students who ostensibly came to ask some theological question, but actually, actually just wanted a place of calm and quiet in the middle of their turbulent lives. In my imagination, I saw fellow pastors in South Africa, Philippines, Korea, Britain, here in the United States, standing in their pulpits after weeping on their knees before the Lord, pouring out their passion for the word of God and the three angels' messages. And I saw youth. How does she put it? An army of youth rightly trained knocking on doors, witnessing on street corners, talking to anyone who would listen about the soon coming of Jesus. All of these faces were rising up in front of me as the tour guide went on and on and on about his dead and marble saints. Just as he was summing up his speech with a grand gesture pointing to the upper walls of the church, these are the saints of the church. I find myself murmuring in my spirit, no, no, these, these are the saints of the church. For you see, my friends, the communion of saints, the fellowship of saints isn't some special collection of the remarkably holy who get memorialized in marble and whose feet never touch the ground. The communion of saints fellowship of saints are men and women and boys and girls who struggle with sin and struggle with pain and cry real tears and laugh real laughter. The fellowship of saints isn't some mythical congregation of the super righteous who gather somewhere near the eaves. No, the fellowship of saints is the real church tired, trusting, hurting, praying men and women who care not a whit for their own righteousness and who gather regularly on their knees. Turn back with me to the book of Acts this morning. As we look at a true fellowship of saints, a real congregation gathered on its knees, this is the church. I want to belong to. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. Keep your finger there, please. If you've been reading the book of Acts recently, and I hope you have, you know that the passage we're going to look at this morning comes at the end of a lengthy story about one of the first episodes of persecution the Jerusalem church ever experienced. In Acts chapter 2, we have the foundational story of Pentecost. By the supernatural action of the Holy Spirit, the disciples of Jesus were so charged and animated that the history of the world was forever changed. The gift of known, intelligible languages that was the outward expression of the Spirit's presence, it was given for the purposes of mission, not 
personal edification. Whenever the Holy Spirit descends, whether in the first century or the 21st century, the purpose is always the same. The purpose is always to push mission, advance mission, propel mission, a mission to tell the world that Jesus is an amazing savior and that he's coming soon. In Acts chapter three, we have this delightful story of Peter and John on their way to the temple. And there they are accosted by a lame man outside the temple courts. And just because Peter and John are the servants of the great physician, by stretching out their hands in the name of Jesus, a man who had been lame for nearly 40 years, he went leaping and dancing through the temple courts that day. I'd love to have the video of that one. But you know, good news usually isn't good news to those who are stuck in the status quo. Have you ever noticed that? According to Luke in Acts chapter 4, for their good deed, Peter and John were soon arrested and hauled before the highest religious tribunal of the land, the Sanhedrin. If you haven't read this account of Peter and John's defense of their behavior recently, go do it this afternoon. If you enjoy confrontational talk and spirited argument and legal wrangling, this is your kind of story. And if you enjoy those things, you probably have what it takes to be a church administrator. At the end of it all, the impotence of evil, the foolishness of evil was abundantly clear to everyone. The highest religious authorities in the land, the spiritual leaders of hundreds of thousands of people, the men who had authority over every kind of legal punishment except the death penalty, it says of them that they let Peter and John go finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all of them praised God for what had happened. Well, there's leadership for you. There's decisiveness for you. So afraid of those they said they led that they couldn't exercise the power in their hands. Our text says that when Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard it, they raised their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them, it is you who said by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, have gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus whom you had anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hands to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I can never read the story of the great prayer meeting of Acts chapter 4 without a shiver going down my spine. That's 
the church I want to belong to. When you set that supercharged, spirit-filled intensity of the infant church over against the smooth-tongued, politically smart schemes of the religious authorities. It's no wonder that in just a very few years, their opponents would complain of them. They've turned the world upside down. Yes, they did, and they did it on their knees. When we look closely at this remarkable story in Acts chapter four, we discover that there are at least four qualities in that Jerusalem church Four qualities in those months after Pentecost that made it such a, a vital place to be. A spiritual powerhouse, a genuine spirit-filled fellowship of the saints. To begin with, my friends, it was a provocative church. Now I know some of you are twisting uncomfortably in your pews when I said the word provocative. It's not a word we utter often in Adventist sanctuaries. If you happen to think that the entire goal of the Christian life is to live as quietly as possible out of sight of the world, if you think that the goal is holding your breath in some dark closet until Jesus shows up, you won't like the word provocative. You might even start throwing hymnals at me but then that would be provocative. Hear me out, godly people, spirit-filled people, spiritually charged people are provocative people. There was no way in the aftermath of the stunning good news of Jesus' death and resurrection that the Holy Spirit was going to be represented on earth by a tranquilized, mummified, inert group of believers. These were provocative people. These were men and women so passionately consumed with the joy they had found in Jesus, so filled with the fire of the Spirit's kindling that they set off sparks wherever they went. My friends, the mission inspired by the Holy Spirit did not begin with a murmur or a whisper and the mission inspired by the Holy Spirit is not gonna end with a murmur or a whisper either. These were proclaiming provocative people. They didn't have to try to be provocative. They didn't have to draft manifestos and stage sit-ins and picket corporate headquarters and rally thousands of people to the government plaza. No, they were a lot more like, like Samson's foxes. Remember them? The ones with the firebrands tied between their tails, running through the dry Philistine wheat fields, setting everything around them ablaze? Yeah. They knew intellectually. They knew experientially the truth of what Jesus himself had said a few months before. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. We don't quote him often on that, but he said it. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. They remembered the prophecy of that old man Simeon at the birth of Jesus in this same temple. The old man who said, this 
child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. Yes, my friends, the saints in this fellowship, the members of this church, were provocative people. And it follows, of course, that a provocative church is always a persecuted church. The record of the long struggle for civil rights in many nations of the world over the last 60 years and the last 60 days. It's given us fresh stories. Fresh stories that remind us that provocative people are almost always persecuted people as well. It wasn't for saying tame things. It wasn't for saying smooth words and endorsing the status quo that Martin Luther King Jr. was gunned down by an assassin's bullet and lies in an Atlanta grave today. It wasn't for agreeing to let the poor of his country suffer under the weight of dictators and oppression and injustice that Oscar Romero was gunned down at the front of his church in El Salvador in 1980. It wasn't for, for blending in. It wasn't because they minimized all differences. That Huichol indigenous Adventists in Mexico a few years ago were so slandered and opposed and harassed that they finally had to leave their ancestral homelands, move to a new area, try to start a new life, all because of the name of Jesus. It was because they were committed to a cause bigger than the status quo, bigger than blending in, bigger than tranquility that these brave men and women through the decades were beaten, they were jailed, they were attacked by dogs, they were shot at by snipers, and some of them were laid in martyr's graves. And my friends, when the church of Jesus Christ in this day and age begins once again to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit boldly without fear or favor, as Ellen White calls it, when it begins to call injustice by the name it deserves, when it refuses to go along and get along just to preserve its own peace, the church will again become a persecuted people. I have heard one too many prayers in my travels, particularly in the part of the church I know best here in North America, thanking God that the church isn't experiencing any persecution. I've heard too many well-intentioned elders Thanking God that no one ever, ever, ever lifts a finger against us. Though it sounds dangerous to say so, I am beginning to become convinced that the lack of persecution that the church in the Northern Hemisphere is experiencing is often a testimony against its obedience and a witness against its faithfulness.
Evil hasn't vanished from our society, but courageous Christians seem to be vanishing. Evil hasn't gone underground. Oh, it grins at us from every cinema marquee. It laughs at us whenever God's little ones go hungry. Evil hasn't gone underground, but far too many Christians have gone underground. The fact that you and I can gather regularly for worship without ever upsetting the forces of evil. The fact that we can go about our daily business in, in an easy, accommodating, tolerant coexistence with the forces of evil is impressive evidence that we may fit the apostles' description of the church called Laodicea. You remember the one that is rich and increased in goods and having need of nothing? Hear me clearly, my friends. I am not calling us to do stupid things. I'm not calling us to be deliberately obnoxious or to taunt the evil principalities. I'm not urging that we try to provoke some persecution so that we will feel righteous. If the church will simply be the church it has been called to be by the Holy Spirit, if it will be obedient, if it will be consecrated, if it will be witnessing, if it will be evangelizing, it will gather all the persecution that it needs to keep its faith pure and its members committed. You see, the forces of evil will see to that. Our passage of Scripture also reminds us that the fellowship of saints isn't only a provocative church and a persecuted church but it's also a prayerful church. Some years ago, I was riding in the car listening to the radio, and along came an advertisement extolling the excitement and entertainment that can be had in New York City on Broadway on what some Americans still call the Great White Way. Near the end of the ad, this reverent voice came on. To say that the moment on Broadway that most impressed him, that most astonished him, was when the whole cast of 75 actors and actresses came dancing down the stage on their knees. Now, I have thought about that image a good many times. My good Adventist upbringing makes me nervous at the thought of dancing of any kind. But I suppose if there's one kind of dancing on which God must smile, it's when his church is dancing on its knees. The members of that spirit-filled Jerusalem church, they responded to the news of Peter and John's release from prison by, by joyfully turning to God. It was their first impulse. And I might ask, is it ours? Their invocation of God's power must have echoed the experience of that lame man who went dancing through the temple courts. Remember it says of him, he was walking and leaping and praising God. That's exactly what was happening in the prayer meeting we read about in Acts chapter 4. God's people were experiencing the awesome power of his awesome presence, and they were reveling in it. 
Notice how they begin. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. What an amazing impression those two words give. Someone has said that you could write an entire volume of theology about just those two words. Sovereign Lord. When the fellowship of saints begins praying, my friends, when God's church begins praying, they aren't addressing a Lord who controls, you know, most of the universe or a, a majority of shares in the heavenly office or 51% of the voting stock or even 70% of the military hardware. He is sovereign. He rules over all. And everything, everything that looks like a challenge to his authority, every flare-up of evil, every act of rebellion by his enemy will ultimately end in futility. Don't take my word for it. Take his word for it. For at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And just to make that point crystal clear in the hearing of God, the members of this praying church went on to describe the futility of evil. Even the supreme act of rebellion by which Herod and Pilate had conspired to put Jesus to death, even that act of evil was gloriously frustrated when Jesus rose up from the grave on Sunday morning the most audacious act of challenge to God's authority and his rulership ever staged by the forces of evil ended in the complete victory of Jesus Christ as all such things always will. So now, Lord, they continue. Look at their threats. Just, just, just look at them, Lord. We're not asking you to silence them, no. And we're not asking you to muzzle them, Lord, no. And we're not asking you to defeat them, Lord, no. And we're not asking you to destroy them. We're just asking that you notice them, Lord. See that they have lifted up their hands against your holy servant, Jesus. Notice Notice, Lord, that they have dared to touch the one you call the apple of your eye. Notice, Lord, they have also dared to move against your church, that one institution on earth on which you still, still lavish your supreme regard. Notice, notice that they have lifted up their hands against this fellowship of saints for which your Son and our Savior gave up his lifeblood. All we need is that you, you notice them, Lord. For we know, we know that you will deal with them in your own good way and your own good time. I wish I could somehow communicate this morning the confidence that comes when you pray like that. 
I wish I could convey to you this morning the certainty I have in my heart that God is even now noticing the threatenings of the evil one. I wish I could somehow share how deep my conviction is that even though we know according to prophecy that God's remnant people is soon to experience a time of division and distress and threatenings and confusion, we haven't ceased to be the apple of his eye. What was it we sang this morning? Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, though foes would rend asunder the rock where she doth rest, yet saints their faith are keeping. Their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping will be the morn of song. Fellowship of Saints in Acts chapter 4 asks for one more thing. One more thing besides that God will notice the threatenings of the evil one. They ask for one thing for themselves. And grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hands to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. At a time when they might have prayed for protection, they didn't. At a time when they might have prayed for insight, they didn't. At a time when they might have prayed for unity, they didn't. At a time when they might have prayed for justice, they didn't. They only prayed for Holy Spirit boldness. Prayer gave them the certainty that God would protect them as much as was needed. Prayer gave them the certainty that God would give them all the insight they could handle. Prayer gave them the certainty that God would provide them as much unity as they could act on. And prayer gave them the knowledge that God had already put in front of them a call to justice which he expected them to act on. The danger, the real danger in that moment was that they would lose their confidence in God's ability. That they would get intimidated by, by swords and spears and prisons. My friends, prayer gives certainty. Prayer gives confidence. Prayer helps us to believe and act on the impulses that the Holy Spirit sends to our heart. Prayer puts the reality to us of what John Bunyan put in the mouth of that figure he called evangelist in Pilgrim's Progress. I have written these words on the walls of my life. Let the kingdom be always before you. Let the kingdom be always before you and firmly believe in things thought impossible. A provocative church is a persecuted church, is a prayerful church. And I should hardly have to say it today, my friends, but a prayerful church is always and inevitably a powerful church as well. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 31, it tells us what happened at the end of that prayer meeting. When they had prayed, the place in which they gathered was shaken. 
They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And get this, they spoke the word of God with boldness. God was so delighted with their prayer. God was so pleased with the integrity of their appeal to him. He didn't wait a year to answer it. He didn't wait a month. He didn't wait a week. He didn't wait an hour. He didn't wait a minute. He gave it to them immediately. Some scholars call this re-Pentecost, the second blessing, a new infilling of the Spirit, a repeat performance of a Lord who fully intended that his church would experience it again and again and again. That's the church I want to belong to. They had prayed for boldness to speak his name and his word, and so that's what he gave them. But it wasn't the boldness of belligerence. We've seen some of that. And it wasn't the boldness of brazenness. We've seen way too much of that. And it wasn't the boldness of militant Christians who are intent on their in-your-face agenda. For we have seen too much of that. It was the holy boldness of those who always seek his face. I want to be part of a powerful church today, my friends, but I don't care if we never march on a capital city. I want to be part of a powerful church, but I don't care if we never perfect human government. I want to be part of a powerful church, but I'm not at all persuaded that that means revving up the fax machines and the newsletters and the legislative agendas and the political hotlines. God is seeking, the Holy Spirit is seeking for a powerful church that understands that Christians are not called to build the kingdom of God primarily through the ballot box. We're not called to build the kingdom of God through the sword or the protest march as our primary ways of bringing glory to him. We are called to plainly go about our mission through the bold retelling of what Jesus has done for us. I don't want to invest the power of my church in trying to persuade 536 people downtown of what God's call in their lives should be. I want to live, I want my church to live, leaning forward toward the second coming. Leaning forward to that day coming soon when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign how long? Forever and forever and forever. Ten years ago, I had the privilege of being part of a nine-person delegation accompanying Elder Jan Paulson, then General Conference President and then a member of this congregation, on the first official visit to the People's Republic of China, 60 years after the Communist Revolution. Virtually every detail of that trip, as you can imagine, was scripted. Every word Elder Paulson was to say 
had to be sent in advance in manuscript so that the censors could read it and eliminate anything they thought might disturb the peace of that people's republic. We arrived in Shanghai early in the trip, and on our second day, we were told that we were going to drive two hours west to the city of Wuxi. We were going to be visiting a midweek prayer meeting, but there was a catch. No one, no one in the congregation could know that we were coming. No one, that is, except the pastor and the choir, who had all been sworn to secrecy. Well, a Wednesday night, a prayer meeting, the heart of downtown, let's just say we all adjusted our expectations. As we walked up the steps to the old stone church, that congregation rents, and we opened the door. We were stunned beyond words to see 600 believers at a Wednesday night prayer meeting who stared at these strangers walking down the aisle of whom they had no knowledge of who we might be. We were ushered to our places at the front. The pastor had told us just before the service began that he had already spotted six government informants in the congregation that evening. Elder Paulson stood to speak. And let me say that he is a gifted, clever man. He found words which the censors would never recognize that inspired a group of of weary and worn Adventists at a Wednesday night prayer meeting. They, the censors, never knew what hit them. Elder Paulson rallied people whose faith was low, rallied people who were discouraged by the oppression all around them. You could feel it in the congregation that night. But the part, the part I will never forget was, was when the choir stood to sing several anthems, most of them in Mandarin. But as an honor to those of us who don't yet know the language of heaven, they had learned several numbers in English. Let me tell you, my friends, there is nothing that will ever make me forget the experience of standing on the front row of the Wuxi Church as 70 believers lifted up their voices to sing the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. Yes, there were tears streaming down our faces and down their faces as well. For some of them, it would mean that they would not get the promotion because they dared to sing in English of the victory of Jesus Christ 
whose kingdom is coming and whose kingdom will rule over the territory once called the Middle Kingdom. Because they sang of Jesus, some of them would not get to go to the universities which they had earned the right to. Because they sang of the victory of Jesus, some of them would stay what their friends would call stuck in their social and economic classes. But I tell you, I tell you, as I watched them sing, as I listened to an experience I can only hope someday is replicated in heaven, I understood what it means to be committed to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and forever and forever. A provocative church is a persecuted church, is a prayerful church, is a powerful church. That's the word of God and the testimony of the Spirit today. That's the church I want to belong to.